Hello and welcome to this episode of Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe with me, Tom Sherrington, and with Emma Turner. Hello, Emma. Hello, Tom. Are you well? Really well, yeah. Had a great weekend, which I discussed briefly in our, in our uh, in one of our episodes, but we have the wonderful Ben Newmark with us. So, hello, Ben. Hello, and thanks for having me. It's, it's a real honour to be asked. Even our listening. I'm, I'm surprised it's taken us to finally sort of <laughs> to do this because we, you know, you, you've been on, you know, someone I, I follow and find so interesting, and it's great to have you. So, thank you for coming. I want to, I want to start off with asking you about your epic book. Why teach? <laughs> you, you must be about one of the like the seventeen people who's read it, Tom. <laughs> well, all seventeen of us <laughs> love this book. <laughs> no, it's but it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's like now we can talk about various other things, but um, you know, it's it's a it's a great kind of it's like from twenty nineteen, and it really it's like a sort of there's so many aspects to it which I absolutely love. But if if you don't mind, because I just think I'm going to start off. With this. I'm going to read a bit of your book to you, okay? Because I, I think this is amazing, okay? And then you can tell us a bit more what you said it. I, I think this is great. I, 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 so bear, bear with me, everyone. Listen. So it says here, think about how little these children knew when they started school and how much they know now and how much they will know in the future. Think about how barren their lives would be if there were no schools or teachers and that they were never taught anything at all. Think about how poor they would be in the most important sense if there were no school and no teachers. And think about this and allow yourself to feel the privilege and enormous weight of responsibility you carry, a weight that goes back hundreds of thousands of years. Picture yourself as a link in the only chain that really matters, a runner with a flaming torch you are thrusting into the hands of younger athletes so it won't matter that one day, sooner than anyone ever thinks they will, your legs will fail. Remember that even if one of your young athletes does fail, they have the same right to run as their luckier compatriots. Remember, we're all part of of a race in which the aim is not to win, but to just keep going. We are the links in the chain. We are the runners in the race. We are the bearers of the torch. And this is why we teach. I just think, all right. (laughs) It's just great. That's the end of your book. So, like, uh, the question is, what, what is it that, you know, you wanted to share that message about the what great Good job, teachers. Have. What was it that motivated you to to want to communicate this so strongly to people? Yeah, that's. I, I'm still proud of that uh, that chapter, and that also formed the um, the basis of a few talks and speeches I did. Um, and I still stand by most of it. I think bits of it are naive. Um, I think now that what the, the bit you shared there at the end, it's the right vision, right? It's the right way to see things. But I think it's not always fully realised for lots of children. And part of the reason I ended up there was because of that. So for a long time as a younger teacher, I was I was drawn into teaching through a narrative that I think is very common uh, of, of well-meaning um, people who think they're going to change the world, especially when they're young. You know, the idea was that you that you get a good education, work hard, and then you go to university and then you go and work in schools where students are disadvantaged and you work really hard for those and those students then do better they get better exam grades, and then um, that means they can then go on to university just like you did. And I know that's problematic. I'm saying that with uh, speech marks around it. 
Um, and then after that, uh, they will earn more money and have uh, better lives also in uh, speech marks. And I think that lots of people think that, especially when they're young, it's a compelling thing, isn't it? You know, the idea that I'm, I'm sort of at the coalface, finding things really difficult, but what I'm really doing is, is changing things a pupil at a time. Of course, it's enormously problematic. I mean, looking back at that now, the, the arrogance of my own youth appalls me. Um, the idea that I, I really believed that, that I had the right to decide uh, what was I when I first started teaching, 23? What was best for children I knew very little about? Um, the fact that I thought if it emulated the, the the kind of life plan of my life, that would work out better for them. I had no idea about any of those things. And it was enormously presumptuous. And I think the best word is rude for me to have even have thought that. But that's not what really got me onto the passage that you read there. I think it was... Um, it, it was realising through my daughter, who uh, the, Bessie, who has a Williams syndrome and a associated learning disability, that the the pursuit of getting high grades is inaccessible for many children. It's just not possible. Now, this isn't lower expectations, and this is me saying that I don't think people should go well. And, it, and it's not me saying that I don't think every child should strive to learn more, and that it's not the duty of all teachers the education system to be able to help them do that. But the very way we've set up education systems and examinations in our, in, our, in, our, in our country precludes the idea that everybody can go to the top. I know it's slightly more nuanced than I'm saying. I, I know that if an entire cohort improves, well, then the grades can actually improve. But even if they did, it would not change the finite number of elite destinations, would it? So it's a really, if you set out to go and teach people because you think that you're going to change the world through instrumentalist outcomes like out, outcomes like exam grades and associated better jobs and better lives, again, with speech marks around those phrases, well, then you're, you're wrong and misguided. And it suddenly came home to me because I realised that I was responsible and I loved more than anybody in the world, a child who was not going to be able to compete right at the... Uh, the meritocratic top. Well, if that's true, well, then what is the point of education? And that did throw me into a bit of an, ex uh, an existentialist crisis for a while. I'd built my whole career on this idea that education could be reduced to something reasonably simple um, uh, and that we could measure it. Uh, to, we could measure it. And that suddenly, well, I suddenly realised that that wasn't true. So then education had to have a wider goal, didn't it? It had to be wider. And it can't be that everybody just is happy where they're at and we just affirm everyone as they are and we just bumble along comfortably because that's an affront to the dignity of everyone. You know, none of us are the finished article and everyone has got the right to, to kind of improve and progress. So I turned to philosophy and I've, I, 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 you probably know him actually. And I really, I suppose I, I, I owe an enormous gratitude of thanks to uh, Bernard Andrews, um, who is uh, a teacher in Spain and international teacher, but also happens to have a PhD in um, philosophy. He's one of those people who never tell you that for ages because he's both incredibly clever and also insufferably modest. So it's like kind of comes out much later. Um, yeah. but, but he sort of introduced me to the idea of, um, of, of education being valuable for its own sake, or, or certainly that the reward is within itself. And that to me is a much more democratic message. Um, uh, every child is capable of learning something and every child's life is enriched by learning something. Of course, they'll learn different things and they'll learn at different rates and not everybody will, um, will learn as much as everyone else. But everyone's life is enriched by knowing more um, from a child with a, a moderate or severe learning disability who learns to feed themselves for the first time. What an astonishing achievement that is for someone who's worked at that, uh, to someone who does go for, to Oxford or Cambridge. And then I realised through a lot of help and a lot of patience from people like Bernie, I had found something that carried a bit more water. 
um, carried a bit more weight than my old instrumentalist view of things. And I suppose, just like the runners in the race, I've been running with that torch ever since, <laughs> revising it, changing I mean, it. Yeah. And I think, you know, like, we, we, we interview lots of different people, um, you know, and, and there's, a, there's a common sense of purpose that people share. But I, you, you're, you, you, I think there's a contribution you make there, which is articulating things which sometimes feel like people aren't able to say and i think you having the personal mission if you like as the parent of, of, of bessie you've got this sort of almost like a platform to to say look you know and we look at look at the way it looks from here and which then people listen to so i mean do you think if you hadn't as a you know do you think if you hadn't had that experience as, as a parent you wouldn't have come to these kind of ways of thinking in the same way I absolutely don't think I would have come to this conclusion and be thinking in things in the same way. Absolutely not. Um, it, it was a gift. It was a gift given to me by 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 my daughter. That was, um, and I think my life would be far poorer, far far. Uh, not that I I have ever achieved wisdom. No one ever does. But I think I would be far fo- more foolish, more unwise um, if I hadn't learned those things through Bessie. But that's part of why I talk about this stuff, right? And Tom Reeves would say the same. Uh, there's not enough of us. <laughs> <laughs> if we have to wait for every single person to have the kind of close proximity, the kind of road to Damascus, direct experience moment as I had, well, then we're never going to be able to make enough of a dent in this, enough of a change. So part of it is is to try and convince other people to see things in this way too, um, so that we so, so that we do things better for all children. And I think that that's actually pushing an open door. I do. And I think that's part of the reason why... Um, I think people have been kind in their response to my work and Tom's work because I think people, even if they express, even if they've never really thought about it in an organised way, they do have a sense of discomfort, um, a sense of although I'm spouting certain things of rhetoric that my that my unnamed school might say about um, every child to beat their target grade. Our mission is to send X numbers of children to Oxford or Cambridge, academic excellence for all, and the brutest. And most purely, sorry, most poorly kind of constructed sense. I think people know that's rubbish, don't they? They know that's not true. And so when they hear an argument of someone saying, "Well, I don't think it's true," I think it's pushing an open door because people already think that. <laughs> so, so that's what I reckon. You, Emma and we were talking about about you before, and Emma, you were really struck by Ben's uh, contribution to the her book, weren't you? That the, the, I was, and actually have these two quotes from it last week in some training. Absolutely. Oh, thanks, <laughs> No, I was really interested, um, <laughs> just for a bit of background, very often in primary, we've got a much wider, broader range of children with a wider range of needs, because a lot of them are awaiting diagnosis, and um, which take years and years and years and years and years, and very often they don't necessarily get the support, the specialist support that they need until quite a way on in their primary career. So we we have lots and lots of children, potentially more than in a secondary mm. secondary school, because by the time they've got that support in, they've kind of gone and got the provision elsewhere. Mm. So I come at it from a slightly different angle in primary because we very often children turn up with us at four, and that's the first time an educator's ever seen them in in that light and never ever kind of seen what they can do, what they can't do, or you know what the barriers might be, and so. We, I wouldn't say I don't want to say it's more inclusive because it's not. It's just it's the nature of the system that we end up with more children with a broader range of needs in primary. But I was fascinated by your chapter about then how we provide for children with such a, a, a wide range of needs and the need to not 
kind of put them all under this umbrella term of send. And I thought your I'd just really like to hear from you the discussion around that and your thoughts on that because that was the bit that I took into the training that I was doing about this kind of the the anti-homogenous part of, of that. Well absolutely because it is it is homogenous, isn't it? I mean, first of all, I don't think I don't think it's controversial. There's no such thing as a send child. So it's yeah. a nonsense term. It's ridiculous. But whenever when anyone anyone ever says, you know, that this strategy will work for your send learners, what's like um uh or or or, um uh how are you meeting the needs of the send learners in your class well that's who that it's important at this point as well i think to point out that there is even there's no standard way in which send designation is made at schools anyway so um we know that the the most um the most powerful driver of whether a child is identified as send or not is not them it's the school they go to so um a complete nonsense term um I do think we need it. I'll come back to that though. So you know, I, I've come around on that. I do still think we need the term, unfortunately. Um, but the thing is, when people say send, they don't mean they, they they do have a more specific idea about what they mean. Of course, they do. When people are talking about um, uh, oh, what provision works for your send learners, they're not talking about the child with a, phys- a physical disability who uses a wheelchair. They don't mean that person. They're, they're not talking about the child with a visual impairment who has their work blown up on an iPad and then works from there. They don't really mean that either. That, that's easy to do. It's easy to, to think about the specific things. There's a kind of generic send child that pe- I think I think that people have in mind. And they mean a child who just finds learning quite hard uh, or, or, is hard, or, or teachers find harder to teach is probably a better way to put that. Um, uh, uh, learn to read slower than other children did. Um, uh, falling further behind. Um, uh, poor confidence. Uh, obviously, probably, almost certainly a correlation with pupil premium existing there as well. Um, and then my problem with that term send designation is it identifies the problem in that child. It, it, it then says that actually that that is something about them. Someone someone else should be looking after that child. It should be some specialist who helps them, which is absolves the mainstream, the teacher um, from looking after that child. So I think that's my main issue with it. I think that, first of all, it is it is a, a generic term. It doesn't mean anything on paper, but I think it does mean something rather more insidious in practice. I think people do have a general word about that. I think it's unhelpful that that moves away. However, uh, you know, for, I, I wrote um, a blog piece about this a while ago, and uh, I, I, it was intentionally a polemic, and it was the idea of just basically destroy the um, send term, destroy the umbrella, get rid of it, um, everything would be better because children are all individuals, and that would see help us see them as individuals and then someone very kind and also stern um obliquely introduced me to the idea of chesterton's fence i don't know if you've come across that analogy before um but it's the idea of an old civil servant who um talks about the new type of civil servant who sees a uh, fence in a field and says i see no purpose for that fence let us remove it immediately and the older wiser civil servant says i certainly will not allow you to remove that fence until you can tell me what its purpose is once you've told me its purpose and the reason it was originally erected, well, then perhaps then I may allow you to demolish it. And what someone was pointing out to me, and it became really clear, is that at the moment, the designation of SEND is the only mechanism that we have in an education system that um, overwhelmingly favours children who find learning easier. Uh, the, the, the easier you find school, the more you get out of it, the Matthew effect. The SEND designation is the only thing we have that drives resource away from that to children who find learning tougher and more difficult. And so practically, the, 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 the idea of getting rid of that designation 
um, to me, could probably have monstrous real-world implications, especially in a world in which um, many children who do find learning tough or struggle for whatever reason are, are being, not being believed, are having to fight for that kind of um, that recognition. If you then said, oh, it turns out STEM doesn't really exist. Everyone can be taught together in one class. I, I, I shudder to think about how that might play play out in practice. So, yeah, regretfully and sadly, we're kind of stuck with it. I sort of hope that in the end, my dream, um, my naive dream, because cleverer and better people have been working on this for a long, long time and, and not got there. But my, my dream is that in the end, provision will become so specific and so tailored to the needs of individual children and so inclusive that we would suddenly find we don't need the term send anymore. And we'd be like, remember, we used to say send about 20 years ago, um, but we don't need it now. But we're a long way away from that. Redundant vocabulary, the redundant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd love that. The, the, the thing I think is interesting then is, is like when you get, come down to the kind of the practicalities of some of these situations. I mean, I've, you know, I was in schools for 30 years and I taught a lot of uh, children with Svend or, or didn't have, and lots of parents lobbying to have a diagnosis and the long road. I mean, that, this one of the things that used to wind me up massively was how you couldn't do something with a child until they had a, a plan or a referral to the education psychologist and which took ages and all the emphasis was on diagnosis and then like 18 months later when you you get the report and the suggestions in the report would be sort of sometimes so mundane about how to teach the child more effectively i was you'd think do you reckon if we'd all sat down for 20 minutes you know just discussed what might be better for this child? We could have realised those things before, and 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 that's that's not even being facetious. I mean, sometimes it was just what all of that for this, and that's the outcome. It, it just felt so ludicrous. It, it it could be so. I'm not saying that's true in every case, but I can think of many where we were just astonished by the lack of. Like, there was no big reveal of therefore teach them in this way it was all about just good inclusive pedagogy making them feel secure psychologically safe yeah treat, t- treating them the same as having high expectations but building success there are all these sorts of things where you think well but this is true for everybody isn't it so do you feel yeah. like we get a bit like lost in the weeds of it all and it's just fundamentals about teaching which all need to be thought about more holistically so you can weave in more inclusive ways of running a room and that type of thing or do you think it's more about more specialist types of provision within a setting i mean these are the kind of difficult things to to think about aren't they yeah they are difficult um but i think that you're right i mean like so when when i first found out that my daughter had a genetic condition i was one of those parents who who looked at the um the advice uh, about um, uh, that was written for parents and then looked at the footnotes immediately and tried to find every single book that it was possible to find. And I actually got it here. Um, I'll show you. Yeah, so the, this is what I call like the big blue book, which um, which has basically um, a, a huge number of studies specific about Williams syndrome all collated into this one thing, all scientific papers about learning and health and about general, about lots of things. What you generally find is just what you said, though. I mean, the children with learning disability, uh, genetic conditions, they're not they're not aliens, not a different species. They're human children, <laughs> and human children tend to learn in the same way. I mean, one, one a researcher, a researcher I greatly respect, um, I know a little bit because she works with children with, with Williams syndrome, Jovan 
um, Joe Van Hoegen, she wrote this uh, study that I read, I wrote, I, I read not too long ago, in which it was about whether um, synthetic phonics worked with children with Williams syndrome or whether they did something else. <laughs> this exhausted study you know, went on and on and on, included with like, yeah, yeah, it's just more synthetic phonics, right? <laughs> you know, it's what works for <laughs> what, what works for all children works for children with Williams syndrome. You just need to be better at it as teachers. <laughs> you just need to be more expert in the application and more careful. And I think that's really fascinating, right? Because I think that once you start looking at, at the kind of teaching and methods that work with children who may traditionally be believed to find learning more of a struggle, you're going to become a better teacher by that. Like the problem is when you start looking at the methods and the pedagogies that work with children who are the cleverest, I'm not very interested in that because anything works or almost or anything can almost appear to work. And you um, arrive at a huge number of, of false positives. So like, guess what? I taught a top set in a grammar school and it turned out that juggling while talking to them about the Weimar Republic led to them all getting grade nines and eights. Uh, everyone should juggle. <laughs> While they're teaching about the Weimar Republic, but of course that, that that's what's going. To, so so if you want to become a really really great teacher and be a really really great world class system, I think you'd do far better to recalibrate and to look at the best practice for children who find learning more difficult, and, and that would be a benefit to all, right? You know, like the 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 the, the students in the top set of the grammar school would no longer have to endure Mister Newmark juggling while he speaks about the Weimar Republic. <laughs> Because he would have learned that, that that they were learning despite that rather than because of it. So, yeah, I mean, I've rambled a bit there, but I guess the point is right. You know, like it, they are, it isn't radical difference. Sometimes it can look radical different. Simon Knight, um, who is someone I hugely respect, would be able to talk more knowledgeably than me. Sometimes to um, an unskilled observer who doesn't know what they're looking at, the principles may look different because you don't really know what you're looking at, right? You know, like, um, yeah. but, but but once your eye is in, you can see that it's exactly the same principles. You know, it's identifying the starting point. It's um, uh, breaking the information down into um, in, in, into a, a appropriate um, sizes. It's then about practice. It's it's I, we, you sequences. You know, that none of this is hugely radical. You're listening to Mind the Gap, presented by John Cat Educational. Over the past six decades, John Cat has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com in the United States or at johncatbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. It's interesting as well because when you drill down into what actually works for children who find learning more challenging and more difficult and you teach in a way that supports those children it's so easy to see that what works for them helps everybody harms nobody you know what helps everyone harms no one so let's just do what's right and teach in a way that supports everybody rather than like you say the the juggling bit and I was fascinated kind of linked into this next question I've got for you about the next comment really that canary in the coal mine comment that you make in your send her chapter was the other thing I mentioned and I just kind of wanted you to explain what you meant by um the canary in the coma because I had a real penny drop moment I was like that's it that's exactly it he summed it up perfectly there first of all I'm horrifically embarrassed because if I didn't make that clear that is definitely not my phrase I didn't coin it I was using it from it, I, is, well it came it came to life in the context that you wrote it is, it it is Nicole so, Dempsey who is the inclusion officer and um uh, uh, and sorry safeguarding and inclusion at Dixon's Trinity or Dixon's uh, Academy's Trust who uses that phrase 
Um, and I stole it on purpose. I'm just checking if you've referenced it. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a conversation with John Thompson now, John Thompson now, but at least I'm on the record of immediately correcting the error. So uh, that was it. Um, well, I've not heard it before, and the context in which you wrote it, Ben, brought it to life, brought it to life for me. So there you go. Thank you. Take but that that's right. That, but you are right. Nicole's right. Okay, and let, let's take a really good example of that, which I was just thinking about before you asked me the question, with um, GCSE history exam specifications, which unfortunately I know very well. Now, um, the GCSE history specification is massive. It's way too big. It's just huge. Um, and it means that really uh, the grey boundaries are ridiculously low. Um, and it means that children can uh, largely go into like a crapshoot when they go into the exam because the the, 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 um, the curriculum is so wide that how well they do certainly in the lower grades is largely a product of luck. Like, did they revise that the night before or didn't they? Which means it tells you very little about students because you don't know if one knows more history than the other because it just depends on whether things come up. Now, we might say, oh, well, the poor students who are around at the U and the one grade there, you know, like it kind of a 8%, 9% might get them a one, 10% might get them a one. You know, that how is it possible for them to have any sense of how history joins up and any of the stories or any of the, the ways it works if they only know 10% of a, of, of a syllabus across four units? Absolutely right. But to use Nicole's phrase, that phrase there, that, they're the canaries in the coal mine. Right? The student who's getting a four also, and he needs to need, know about 38 to 45% of that material. Um, so they are also impoverished by this system, which is um, actually set up in the interest, really, of the student, of the very few students who get nine and eight, who are the only ones who are able to see that full thing. And even then, they're not seeing the full thing because they've had to focus on learning lots and lots and lots of things in a superficial level so they can cover every question if it comes up. If we narrowed, well, narrowed, narrowed's a horrible word, I'll get killed for that, won't we? If we made the curriculum more appropriate and we slimmed it down, well, then that would, of course, benefit students who find learning enormous amounts of content difficult because it would all make a bit more sense. They'd have a better chance of joining up the dots and making that connection. But it would also benefit the students who are the, um, the highest flyers, too because they will be able to do more with what they've learned. Um, and I think that's a good example of, of, of how that is. I think another one would be... Um, uh, and again, this is, would be Nicole, but when you're watching a classroom and, uh, you know, four children may be identified as having SEND and having moderate learning difficulty or whatever nonsense term is applied to them, and that term is nonsense. It means absolutely nothing. I did a deep dive into that one as well. Um, and you might think, oh, well, th those three students are struggling because there's a lot of content being covered in the class and they're the most visibly struggling because they're um, uh, finding it hard to concentrate and not doing well on their tests. It's not just those three who are struggling, is it? You know, they, they, they don't exist as a separate group. They're on a continuum with everybody else. And how likely, if you would do something very facetious and rank those as the three students who found the content most difficult in the class, number four is not all right either, is she? You know, like the, it's, not, it's not like she's finding it really yeah. easy. Number five probably isn't very good. Number six, you know. And so um, I think that, yes, uh, we, we're just looking at a system that is disadvantaging lots of people. It's, and, that, and that to me, I mean, this tramps so, so well with, I mean, I, these are some of the things I bang on about constantly when I'm training and talking about all teaching, all students, are they all practicing? Are they all speaking? Are they all able to, you know, be asked questions? And you you can't promise this a lot. It's a, it's a very entrenched thing. It's probably one of the most common things teachers say to me in all the training I do is, like, if you're talking about questioning, they'll say, yeah, but what if they're anxious and what if they, 
what if they, you know, they're afraid to answer? And you say, so what? what's your answer to that? You can't just say, because you're anxious about them, therefore I'm going to leave them out even more. <laughs> like, mm. it's got to be the other way around. You've got to be thinking, okay, they're anxious. I'm anxious about that. So how can I involve them? That's It's the opposite way around. How can I involve them, which makes them feel secure? And that's how you need to resolve that problem. Not by going, oh, I'm just not going to ask them any questions at all in case they feel bad. And I feel like teachers feel really sort of, caught in this like they're they they mean well they want to do the right thing but then they end up doing stuff which exacerbates that exclusive exclusion and you have some i mean this is i want to i was saying this earlier so in our previous episode emma and i did a kind of like <laughs> stuff reporting and i was talking about the research ed conference which you spoke at uh on the first weekend of, of september and it was my sort of highlight of the day you know and i said that on twitter when it really was oh thanks and a couple of things that stood out for me, one of them, one of which was the quote, again, from another person about what can we do every day to, to make, to, what would we do every day to teach this child if they were ours? Because they are. <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's the same quote at my daughter's school. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, that's a, a beautiful thing. But then you have this very practical thing. So you and Tom Reese have come up with these five principles of inclusion. And, and, and one of them, it starts off with, it, it which is brilliant dignity not deficit so that's mm. one of the things we've been talking about but then this other one i think is, is sort of most pra- more practical is different but not apart which is really where the inclusion comes in so i mean to me I, that i was really up thinking really hard about that different but not apart so how in a in a say a big you know a complex primary school or a large secondary school we've got if we've got integration and that sense how do we make children feel part of something when the rate you know when range of attainment for example is a definite challenge i mean in a practical terms teachers find that difficult they report it to me and you know constantly it's it's hard so what sorts of things are you thinking about that teachers can do I'm not saying you should have easily as the answers but what sorts of things should they be thinking about doing which makes children feel a part of it even though they have slightly different ways mm. of, or you know, needs or, or different kind of extremes of, of challenge there's a few things they can do. I think there's definitely a few, but it's interesting. First of all, I, I don't know. This is a hunch, right? This is but, but, but something you just said a minute ago, Tom. You said that when you talk to teachers, when I talk to teachers, I guess it would be the same. They said they find the range of abilities very difficult to to cater for, right? You know, they find that difficult and they find that tough. I agree, it's a challenge. But when you actually follow that up with with more questions, it, it almost invariably ends up as being like it's really hard to teach the slower ones. When I know I should be focused on the the higher ones, uh, that's a hunch, but I think that that exposes like it's always the ones who are finding it harder who are the problem. You know, like we, 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 we it's very rarely that a teacher says like what what I find really difficult is that when I'm genuinely helping the children who finds really things really difficult and really tough and I'm taking them through that sequence, they get it. Some of the really bright kids get a bit bored. Like that, that that's very rarely expressed. Um, uh, and it's just interesting to me that it's always the problem located in those who find it harder. It's kind of like piling on disadvantage when they've already got it. But the question you asked me was like, how do you do better than that? How do you make it? In, uh, how do you make that inclusive? Well, I think that the first of those things is that you can value a wider range of achievements. I think that's something really practical that you can do. Um, you can make it clear in, in a genuine, non-condescending, and non-patronizing way that a child who learns to um, who, who, who learns their uh, multiplication tables for the first time uh, years after everyone else, that because that child has put work into that and has really tried, 
that is um, worthy of the same honour, the same respect um, uh, as uh, as a child who you know is, is winning competitions in those things. And incidentally, I've talked to kids about this kind of stuff. I can't help doing it a lot, and they get that. They do. It's not that counterintuitive a message. It's not that difficult to understand. You know, when you say we all, you know, I'm not talking about learning styles or any kind of nonsense here, but saying that we all find, you know, some things harder than others. And if someone achieves something um, that is that, that, that is less obviously um, as high as someone else, but they started from a, a, a different point and they work really hard at that thing, they are worthy of that respect, aren't they? Um, and, and I think that if, if children are taught those things, they'll they'll come on board with those. I also think there's a lot that school can do about it, just messaging. Um, a challenge that a that, that's occurred to me is that it's really common and rightly so there's nothing wrong with it at all but um you think at a school when they've got um really successful alum uh almanac i never say that word but someone who's gone away you know to oxford or cambridge university become a world famous doctor or whatever that's really good we should celebrate those things that's great we should be but then i, I often think about those schools and i think i reckon i i always think i bet there's a, a person who's been working there as a cleaner for 20 years you know, has seen a generation of children has looked after this building, you know, has, has been the means and the reason that this building still functions and still goes on. And I wonder where their assembly is. You know, where, where is there? You know, like, where is there? Like, we, we, we're genuinely thankful to you, you know, without you. And I don't mean in, in, in a condescending and patronising way, you know, I mean, it's a genuine contribution to this community. And I think if we did that sort of thing, we create more ladders and we make life a little bit less hopeless, for some children who know that they're not going to go to Oxford or Cambridge or end up working at NASA, you know, they, they, they kids very quickly work this stuff out. <laughs> they're, they're not they're not foolish. They, they might be um, they might be childlike a lot of the time, but they're not childish. They grow out of that very quickly. And if you're able to give that honour to them, I think that that would that would that would help. I find there's a couple of debates which I find sort of I don't know that. I feel they lack sophistication and, and they end up being very. <laughs> Like everything, who'd have thought on Twitter? But so one of one of the two, I think there are two comp, two subtle things that I, that sprung to mind when you're saying that. One one of them is around this idea of um, differentiation, which which some people like, and they go off on on it like banned word shouldn't be saying it should be outlawed because they're thinking it's about lowering expectations. But actually, I I, I cast my mind back to you know 20 years ago working in in Haringey, where I, where I live now, in a comprehensive school, and watching this English lesson where we had no setting, year 11, watching this fantastic English teacher teaching a mixed ability class, mixed attaining class, as we call it now. Students who are going to get top grades GCSE, doing doing Romeo and Juliet, and having multiple, multiple ways of engaging with the text uh, at different stations in the class. And some are writing kind of essay standard things and others were not able to do that. They were going to get like a, a grade one sort of functional skills. And they had sort of much more sort of pictorial kind of things. And some people think that was absolutely appalling. But I, I actually think when I look back on that, those children were all succeeding at a level which was appropriate for them. And they were also engaging with Shakespeare together in the same room and hearing language and hearing it shared, which they wouldn't have done if they'd been hived off into... A separate room. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like sometimes the, the debate about differentiation has hampered our ability to actually talk about appropriate work for certain children. Do you do you agree with that, or do you think I'm wrong about that? No, I agree with you. I definitely, I, I do agree with you. But I also think it's it's helped. I, I get frustrated by people talking about these things as rhetoric and then have nothing 
when you talk about how or you know how does this work you know the the the, the, the kind of blunt comment being like yes of course high expectations for all teach to the top and then scaffold down so everybody can reach those heady heights great brilliant now show me how that works show me like this 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 incredible scaffold you've got so that the child who didn't learn history last year because they were at a different school is really struggling gets a nine at the end of this lesson you know i, I think that a lot of the time this is fiction and, and it frustrates me because it just turns into people lobbing um kind of uh what's the word like linguistic bombs at each other in silos without us ever getting to the bottom of it like what I, what I want to know is great you know like so what does this scaffold look like um I think the best example I've seen of how differentiation in the proper sense works and I do take the criticism but I do certainly don't want to return to um the days when a teacher expected to produce seven different lesson plans I mean first of all it's massively terrible on workload and I think a lot of the time it doesn't work but Dixon's Trinity Nicole's school I'm just going to talk about Nicole all the time in case she hears this and will then take my apology for um using her canary in the coal mine um phrase as if it was my own but <laughs> one of the cleverest things or almost um insightful things that I've heard recently is how they set up classes um and year groups uh, at Dixon's at some of the schools so for example you've got a year of like 170 children right um, say, for example, hypothetically, it says 170. And um, as part of their English sequence of learning, schema work, curriculum, whatever we now call it, um, they have to write an essay at the end of a unit. And at the end of that unit, it'd say that we've got 140 of those children who've arrived at the point where they can sit down and write that essay. And it's going to take them a lesson. You know, or it's going to take them maybe a lesson and a half to write that essay, the practice element of it, which is important, right? Well, they don't need a skilled English teacher to stand over them while they write their practice essay. That's a complete waste of that professional knowledge and expertise. So what Dixon's does is merge all of those groups sometimes, and they will put them under supervision with SLT or somebody else to do that practice element, which then frees up the expert teachers to work with the 30 children who actually are not yet at a point where they can write their essay. Now, when I heard that, I thought, well, that's the practical sort of example I'm looking for. <laughs> if, if now, if, if Nicole says to me, it's teaching to the top and scaffolding down, this is what it looks like, I get that and I understand it. Um, so that's one good example, I think. How interesting, Ben, because I work in Leicestershire, I live in Leicestershire, and a huge swathe of Leicestershire primary schools have got mixed age classes. So you've got children in the class who you've got like a mixed age what year one and two or a mixed age year five or six. And a lot of our schools have got three year mixed age or four year mixed age in one class. And when I hear the differentiation argument, I just want to lose my proverbial whatever, because I'm like, you tell me how to not differentiate when I've got a spread of ability that not only covers one year group, but covers four year groups in the same class or in some separate stages year two and year three in the same class so you're straddling two separate phases of the national curriculum just teach the top just teach the top emma oh just honestly teach, i have honestly i have almost lost my proverbial so many times with people who say that I'm like okay well you come into this classroom then mm. do that because the the advice that we give for mixed age classes is teach the kids in front of you find out what they can do mm. And then find out what their next steps are and teach them that. And flex your lesson structures, flex your day. And in primary, we've got the chance to flex the day. We can do 
half of them doing this and half of them doing that at different times of the day. And so there are multiple solutions. So if you ever want to see differentiation done absolutely beautifully, accurately and well, go and teach, go and see a primary school that's got mixed age classes because we have to do it and we have to do it well. And that's a really good environment for children who potentially find learning more difficult because there's so many other things going on in the room at the same time and you can match the children so much more effectively with what they genuinely need what they genuinely need rather than actually oh well you're you're going to do this and you're going to do it it's Mm. so much more flexible and it's so beautiful it's such an underexplored avenue for really good responsive adaptive teaching and and proper differentiation Mm. (laughs) i'm off my soapbox now i'll get down Of course, um, you're right. Of course, Michael Merrick has been very good on this as well. I mean, like, I don't think anybody has really successfully answered his critique about what the curriculum wave means in primary, uh, that the big focus on sequenced, difficult, uh, sequenced, coherent curriculums that are very well mapped out. If you're in a small school and you're teaching four year groups in in one year, I think that Michael's asked that question a few times and never, as far as I've seen, got got a convincing answer about how that works i know somebody writes i know somebody writes about it but we won't talk about that <laughs> but i think i think it's interesting and one of the other one of the other things that is in your principles and it comes through i mean it's, if people who haven't read it uh, yet or, or discovered ben's blog one of your recent ones is, is about bessie winning her race and this idea that you know, winning that race is a profound achievement for her and it's a significant thing that's a friend, the fact that she can you know she's got ways of of, of succeeding and and everybody does but you you get into the you come across this thing of like some people are so paranoid maybe they have some grounds for it but that of, of lowering expectations being the, the kiss of death for disadvantaged children for example um that they they hate the idea they kind of hold the line on you know exams are the most equivalent best way of assessing everybody because when they're all you know disadvantaged kids can be prejudiced by teacher bias and so on but when we're talking about multiple ways of celebrating the success, we're not very good at it, are we? And, we're not, you know, we're not. And, and that's because we, we it's like that Taylor Swift song, right? It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. It's because almost by de- definition, everybody who, well, most people are running schools did well out of it, right? You know, like mm-hmm. it, 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 we, we, you have to pass exams and then you have to go to university and they have to get a further degree to become a teacher. And so we do see things. It's very easy to see things in these in these narrow bands. I was talking to my wife about this the other day, and I think I think this is interesting. And I, I suddenly realised this is like kind of a, a microcosm that went wrong. Do you remember National Records of Achievement? Remember those brown folders that yeah. uh, that, that 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 people were supposed to have when I was at school? And they were supposed to fill them with with, with a multiple range of things, weren't we? Exam grades. I was too old. I'm too old to have had one. Yeah, but exam grades were supposed to go in there, exam certificates. But so were all the other things you did. Letters from places that you volunteered at, um, uh, scouts, scout badges, uh, music certificates, um, uh, certificates of attendance at courses, and all this kind of stuff. What a beautiful idea that was! What a beautiful idea that was. The idea of like a multiple carrying around, everybody carrying around something that showed multiple ways that you could succeed in life. And it died and it was crushed, I think, because of people like me. Because I remember at school, like sneering at those because I didn't need them, did I? 
You know, like the idea is I did quite well at school and I thought, you know, like I'm not going to need my swimming certificates. I'm not going to need, you know, like um, a letter from my work experience saying I'd showed up every t- on time every time. So they were killed by attitudes like mine. And that, I look back now, and that's half the whole problem, wasn't it? Because we weren't acting as a team. Like what, what we hadn't got was I probably was all right without it. But by not taking part in schemes and strategies like that, I was yeah. undermining people who that actually would have been enormously powerful for. We've all got to do that sort of thing. We're going to value multiple activities and multiple achievements. We've got to value all of them, and we've got to be honest about the things we can't do. Yeah. And it's so interesting, the psychology around this. I remember I was in a, I was the head of a selective school for a while, and, and one of the things that I inherited was a thing called, you know, gold certificates. Every time there was a, a, a report, people got grades and then what i noticed you know after a couple of years there was that the same children always come up on the stage to get the gold certificate like i knew all their names because they always saw them and we tried to devise a way of people working gradually to what like gold certificate being something you could work towards and then eventually people would all manage to get there but then once we started doing that people started saying things like well, anyone can get a gold certificate like that was a terrible thing and it became the whole thing of the the the, the, the kind of the kudos of it had lost because anyone could get it and that 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 was the problem we were dealing with like of course everyone can get it in the end but it's like you know and and so the value of something needing to be kind of rare is 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 a ludicrous idea that we hold on to in in education that it's only matters if a few people can have it it's a deeply embedded thing and it's very very difficult to to eliminate so we have to sort of find other ways where we're not talking in those ways something i mean I'd love to talk to you about this more, Ben, but the, the National Baccalaureate Trust that I'm part of. And we've I've been trying to work on this for years. And we I used to work in a school next to a special school. We were in the same building. And was, this was our dream, that one day our students would all have the same event where they would all come and get their baccalaureate certificate. And her students would have done certain things, so would have mine. And it, this, that, that, that baccalaureate idea is, is, in the, is in the mix of policy thinking. But I feel like, that we need more people to kind of you know, bang the drum for it, really, because I feel like it's kind of there to be, you know, explored. It's a very practical solution. I'd love it. I'd love it if that was how we what ran the, the system. Yeah, and I think that balances things, doesn't it? I mean, you mentioned earlier on about um, about assessment methods. I mean, I, I happen I happen to think that exams are the least worst option. You know, I don't think anyone said that they are the least worst option in, in in what they're trying to do. The problem is, is that's the only. No, that's not fair. The problem is, is that's the thing we emphasise over and to the exclusion of all else, right? You know, like, and and, and that's the problem. And I think that is, uh, it ends up being like an absolute nonsense. Like, you you take um a child, take for example a child who who has not got um lots of GCSEs above five or six. Maybe the GCSEs they finish with are numbers on ones and twos. Now, there, like things about the personal character of that child become enormously important. You know, if they've been at school every day, despite the challenges they face, you know, if they've sat through um, exams they found really difficult and got there, that's the sort of thing that are actually really important for their next de- destination to know. But I guess that comes back to the point we started at the, at the beginning. That should also be important for everyone, right? Now, I'll return here. Am I allowed to be political on here, um, Tom? You can, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can cut it afterwards. I, I'm, I'm reminded, I think, of um, the famous quotation about Boris Johnson's, uh, by Boris Johnson's teacher, 
who who said, you know, that despite his that that him finding learning easily, he he had basically had an utterly appalling and dishonest character. Surely that would have been in all of our interests for character to have been assessed and to have yeah. been used as a deciding factor. Surely that the fact we just looked at exam grades and someone's uh, personal intelligence has ended up um, being of great cost to us all. <laughs> I'm just going to deviate ever so slightly, Ben, and tell you a story about my dad. And it's not often I jump from Boris Johnson to my dad and he would be furious. <laughs> he was in the same sentence as Boris Johnson, my father would. Um, but I just wanted to kind of pick up on this idea about celebrating things and the culture of the school being a culture of celebration and recognition. Because for years and years and years, my dad had a certificate next to his his side of the bed, which I'd got when I was just turned four. And I'd gone to primary school and it was my very first sports event. And the head teacher gave me a certificate that was third equal in the jumping bean. And my dad had this <laughs> bed next to his bed for years. And I said, well, you know, because I went on to be quite successful with running and was quite sporty and whatever. And they've got all these other. I said, why did you frame that one? And he said, because that was a time when I knew that you were in the right place with people who really cared about you. And it was just a lovely moment that Mr. Hardy, my old primary head teacher, he said it was just indicative of a beautiful place and a beautiful moment in your life. And I was thinking that's partly why I went into primary, because I wanted to create schools like Mr. Hardy, where you celebrated your very youngest children who've managed to get third equal in the jumping bean. And I was just thinking, wouldn't it be lovely if all schools had that kind of culture where those little tiny milestones, even though they're really tiny, are celebrated and then shared with the families that love those kids that was my little segue from boris johnson to my father <laughs> of your achievements that was, that was like, yeah. that? that's going to be on my in my record of achievement is third equal in the jumping beat <laughs> my son's first certificate at school was for sitting quietly on the carpet <laughs> <laughs> were they trying to encourage more of that behavior tom exactly that... yeah, no. behavior for learning technique anyway he came home he was he, he, was, he was made up and we used to joke about this. This is how terrible. We used to joke about the fact that when he, you know, when he was at a football team and he was at primary school and everyone gets these trophies, his was always the one for being like, um, you know, kind of like good, good sort of the of the year kind of thing, rather than for being scoring the most goals. But you know, that, that actually is probably much more important. <laughs> you know, well, yeah, fair, and, and, it's it's right, yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's how I feel like it should be. I mean, like my my um, because the, these other qualities are important. They they they're, they're not they're not wooden spoons i was thinking the other day um i they the, my wife plays hockey and at the end of year hockey awards um so someone uh won the award for player of the year and i asked amber uh my wife why she'd won that um and she said oh it's because she's acted as like a, a great mentor for they, they've got a lot of young players who've just come in you know like the juniors who've just come into the senior team and she took them under their wing and showed them how all that works and everything else and I thought that's how it should be, isn't it? Right? You know, like traditionally, you'd say our oh, player of the year is the player who has um, who has who has been most effective on the pitch. But if you start to look at a wider contribution, well, then there are all sorts of reasons that people can yeah. be can 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 be can be more effective. And that's just what we need to aim for more in schools. You know, it's not about it's not about um, not having high academic standards. It's just placing them within a context in which they are one of many virtues that human beings can be celebrated for. Well, that's fantastic. I and mean, I have to say, I mean, we could talk for longer. I, I was going to ask you about, um, we, we, our, our producer is giving us the nod now. It's time to wrap up. But 
Friday Five. I mean, how do you, how did that the thing you've created every Friday on Twitter or well, most Fridays? Hashtag Friday Five. Ben sets the challenge. You've got to come up with five songs. I love doing that. I did that. I mean, I've moved. I've started moving it across to threads actually now, where I'm. I'm more off, but that's not time to talk about that. But I suppose the reason I did it, it wasn't. It wasn't any huge strategy on it. But one of my favourite things when I first joined Twitter was watching people who usually disagreed talking about a shared interest in a pleasant way, whether that was gardening or cars or football teams. I used to really enjoy that. I think it was kind of influenced by that hate idea, you know, of riders and elephants. And I thought, I think the reason it took off was I just wanted people to join in on something that wasn't like, 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 like disputed territory, you know, like, like someone might disagree with you on almost everything to do with education, but you can both like um, the Bee Gees. Yeah. (laughs) You can, I mean, you shouldn't, but you can, you know, like, and maybe find some common ground. That to me is a, is a someone who's, you know, a passion and interest in the community of teachers. It's not just about the technical stuff. But I just want to say thank you. I mean, I, it's your, your work you're doing, the work you do, obviously, in your school, but wider, reaching out, the system-wide stuff that you've been doing with Tom Reese, the, the voice that you've got, and you're using it to shape thinking. And I think it's brilliant. And oh, people, there's so much to read in your in your blog, but also in your through social media but it's it's wonderful to have someone like you with your kind of intelligence and the kind of thoughtfulness in the system and you know i think you have an influence you might not even realize people reference those ideas and it's it changes the way things are so thank you so much well thank Uh, you for saying that i don't know i I, I think i say everything i say is like a work in progress (laughs) You know, there, there are, yeah, I, I was actually like when when you started talking about the book, I was like, hmm, there's going to be a bit of this that you're going to read back that I don't agree with now. Well, thanks so much. Um, we better wrap it up there, but it's been brilliant talking to you. I knew it'd, it'd be great, and it's it's been a real p- pleasure. So, thank you to Ben. Thank you thanks, to Emma. Ben. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Have a lovely evening. And thank you to everyone listening to Mind the Gap making education work across the globe. That's what we try to do. And uh, we've had some great guests and Ben is is now there for you to listen to. So enjoy the YouTube uh, version as well. And we'll see you really soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap. We hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today. For much more great content, make sure to check out the video version of our show, which includes additional segments and features. Visit edcircuit.com or go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. See you next time.